would uh, that would be enough, wouldn't it? I mean, all just all the words that we've already sung this morning and what we've heard together. Um, but I want to preach, so if you'll stick around for a little bit longer. Of this is my my eighth year of being a pastor, just starting here, but I've never gotten to preach on an Easter morning before, and so great privilege for me to do that. And uh, we're going to turn in a little bit to Revelation chapter one, and so if you have a Bible with you, you can get there. Um, but we're here this morning to celebrate the truth, the reality that Jesus really is risen. He is risen indeed. And that makes all the difference in the world for us. That's very good news. In fact, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Christ had not risen from the dead, then my preaching and your faith is in vain. Then we're just playing a silly little church game and, and, and what we're doing here every Sunday morning, and what I've given my life to, and many people in here have given their life to, is just a joke. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And so we believe, because God's Word tells us, and many eyewitnesses agree, that Jesus really is alive. And we know, as Belen just saying, that our Redeemer lives. In so many ways for us to know that. So it's a privilege to be here this morning and celebrate the Jesus who really is alive. It's very good news. And we live in a world that doesn't always have a lot of good news. I don't know if you have the same problem that I have, but sometimes, for me, silence is more distracting than noise. Do you know what I'm talking about? That if you're sitting in a spot and it's just really quiet, it's so easy to get distracted. And I was trying to work on my sermon this week and was experiencing that. So I decided I'm going to leave. And I left the office and I went and worked on my sermon at the coffee attic. I figured some noise, some people, some caffeine would all work together somehow to, to, to inspire um, my, God's words to, to come through me. And so I went and did that and I sat down at this high table and I was sitting right across from a TV and that TV was muted, so I couldn't hear anything, but they had CNN on. And just during the time that I was there, which wasn't very long, just the headlines that I saw come across the screen reminded me that we live in a world with not a lot of very good news. While I was there, um, it was, there was a story about people's outrage over North Dakota's abortion laws, which are the toughest in the nation, to a story about um, Victoria's Secret unveiling a line of undergarments for teens and preteens, and even CNN was upset about that, which you know is pretty bad, um, if that's the case. And then, and then a Supreme Court discussion on how to define marriage was a headline, and then a follow-up on a story of sexual abuse and other things that I read this week, but that was all just in a short period of time while I was sitting there. And so if we look to the world around us, if we're discouraged and feeling a little bit hopeless, and we start looking to the world around us for hope and encouragement, we're going to be pretty disappointed. And so a lot of us kind of turn a little bit inward, like, I'm not even going to read the news anymore. I'm not going to watch the news anymore. But then when we look even at our own lives, isn't there enough reason for discouragement in our own lives, in our own families, with our own finances, with our own relationships, all sorts of things, even as we look at ourselves. So many, many reasons to be discouraged and to feel a bit hopeless in the world that we live in today. 
And so I would guess that most of us do try at our best. And so when people say to us, how are you doing? We usually tell them good because that's what they want to hear. But if we were honest, we would probably say things more like, you know what? I am weary and worn out today. Or I am anxious and aimless today. Or, you know what? I can't keep my eyes open during the day and then nighttime comes and I can't even sleep. Or I feel like I'm surrounded with people all the time, but I'm still feeling really lonely. And so that's the world that most of us live in most of the time. And it's very obvious to us that things just aren't the way that they should be. They're just not. And so where do we turn then to find encouragement? I'm going to tell you a story about a guy, a guy whose name is John, and he's probably not too different from you and I. He had a relatively normal life with a relatively normal family. Maybe you don't have a relatively normal family, but he did. Uh, a relatively normal family and a relatively normal job. But one day, this man named John left everything, everything that was normal, and he went traveling with a stranger who became his best friend. For three years, there weren't many times when you wouldn't see these two guys together. They laughed together a lot. They cried together a lot. They experienced much. John's friend was actually a lot smarter than him, so a lot of time that they were together, John was pretty confused as to what he was talking about, but he liked being around him. And he wasn't the only one who liked being around him. A lot of people liked being around John's friend, and so John's friend became really popular, but John always kind of had this inside track. He wasn't just one of the mass of people that liked to hang out with his friend. He was an insider. He was a friend. But about three years into their friendship, things started to change a little bit, and John noticed that his friend became really, really focused And he started to talk differently, like things were going to be changing really quick. And John didn't totally understand it. And then they did. In the course of one week, John's friend entered a town as a popular potential hero, but by the end of the week, he would be a laughingstock who would be mocked and unfairly tried and beaten until an execution was ordered. And he would die an ugly and humiliating public death on a cross. John looked on with shock and grief as his best friend had his hands and feet nailed to the cross. Just moments before his friend died on that cross, the account says, from John himself, the account says that Jesus looked at John from the cross and said, nodding toward the crucified one's mother, behold your mother. And from that point on, John adopted Jesus' mom as his own and took care of her. John and Jesus were best friends. And so when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, and he really died, John really grieved. But on the third day, as John and some friends were gathered in a room, the one who had died came to visit. He was alive. And he came and spent some final days with them, appearing to many and giving them final instructions before he ascended to his throne in heaven. And John's life from that day on was anything but dull. 
the small group of friends that he traveled with were filled with the Holy Spirit just days after Jesus' ascension. And they began to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That though he died, yet he still lives. And that if you would repent of your sins and trust in him, you too can live forever. And that was the message they shared. And it went really well for a very short period of time. But then very soon, all those who followed what they had called the way began to be persecuted. And so all these who had put their trust in Jesus were now suffering and enduring much. Aligning yourself with Christ at that time was costly. And one by one, each one of John's friends would die. Most of them, according to church history, executed in ways almost as humiliating as what Jesus himself endured. Until it got to the point where John was the only one that remained. He was the only one still living. He wasn't executed, although they actually, church history says, they actually attempted to execute him as well by putting him in a large basin of boiling oil. But he was miraculously rescued and delivered from that and sent to live on a little island, the, the, what would be kind of our modern day Alcatraz, called the island of Patmos. And John would spend the rest of his years living in isolation from all other believers on this island called Patmos. And while he lived on that island, John never, neither did any of his other friends who were willing to die for the sake of this Jesus who had still lived, none of them turned their back again on Jesus, and John wouldn't either. And so it makes me wonder, what would, what would cause this old man exiled, having endured all that he endured, to, to stay trusting in Jesus on an island exiled by himself. What exactly does this man need as he sits, as an old man on an island isolated from everybody? What is it that he needs? And I'm going to contend today that what John needed while he was on the island of Patmos is the exact same thing that we need sitting in Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church on Easter morning, 2013. That we need the same exact thing that John needed. And that I trust that God will give that to us this morning. Thankfully, what John was given, he wrote down. He recorded. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write it down. And it's been preserved through generations so that we can read what John was given that day. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And so if you do have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 20. And this, I'm going to say a lot of words this morning, but this here we know for sure is God's Word. And so as we read this, let's stand together if you're able. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Listen to the Word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You can be seated. Grateful for the Word of God, that it has been preserved for us and handed down to us so that we might receive that which we really need. We're going to kind of break this passage that I just read up into three different sections this morning as we go through it. There is a sermon outline in your bulletin if that would be helpful for you to follow along and take some notes. There's also some questions at the end that I'd encourage you to look at as you leave this place. Maybe to reflect on on your own, maybe to discuss with others uh, after this morning is done. First we're going to look at the setting, so we understand the setting. I explained it a little bit in my story up front. We're going to get a little bit bigger picture as we look at verses 9 through 11. So look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. John introduces himself as he writes this, as a brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Okay? He says, I'm a brother in the tribulation. I'm a brother and a partner. He recognizes, he knows what's going on in the churches, that all the churches are enduring great persecution for their faith in Jesus. And he says, I'm with you. I, I feel your pain. I've been where you've been and I am where you are. I know what it is to be persecuted for your faith in Jesus. And then he says, I am on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God. And the testimony of Jesus. He recognizes that. He doesn't say, I'm here because there were some mean people that put me here. He says, I'm here because I testified to Jesus. That he really is alive. And, I, and because of my testimony of the word of God, I was put on this exiled island. So that's his introduction of himself. And then he says that he is one who is enduring persecution. The patient endurance a brother in patient endurance that is in Jesus. He has endured much. And if you turn back just a little bit in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12, I kind of wonder all the time as I read the stories of the disciples and how it was that they might have endured all that they had to endure. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says this. It says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, as he endured the cross, he was able to endure the cross because he saw the joy set before him, that he would be seated in the throne at his Father's right hand. 
Then it says, verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So those of you, encouragement, who are feeling a little weary and faint-hearted this morning, would you take the words from the author of Hebrews that says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you might not grow weary and lose heart. If you are in Christ, you know that you too will one day be in glory with the Father. So consider that as you look at your own weariness this morning. I think that's probably how John got through. And then what happened, if you look at verse 10, it says, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Okay, the Lord's Day is Sunday. At this point, the Christians had already changed. The the Jewish people had gathered, their Sabbath was Friday night through Saturday night. But now the Sabbath, the, the, the day of the Lord had changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because that was such a significant event and that happened on Sunday, Christians began to gather on Sunday mornings. And so this Sunday morning, unfortunately, because John is exiled, he doesn't have anywhere to go. He can't go to church. There ain't no church on Patmos. And so John has church by himself. John's like, well, I can have some church here by myself. And so he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, seeking after the risen Savior. And John, who is probably very discouraged at this time, is given exactly what he needs. And like I said at the beginning, I think it's also exactly what we need. And what John received was this. John received from God a vision of the risen Jesus. You're discouraged here this morning. I think what you need, maybe you need a hug from somebody, maybe you need a shoulder to cry on, those things might be helpful, but ultimately what you need is a vision, a picture, an image of the risen Jesus. The Jesus who has died and who is alive forevermore. You'll notice that John didn't just get, if you looked at verse 11, John didn't just get this vision for himself. The command was, this vision is for the churches. The church needs this, John. It's not just for you. This is going to be a great encouragement to you. But the churches need to have this vision of the risen Jesus. So let's look at the vision. Verses 12 through 16. What is the vision that John got? Now, if you like to make connections between Old Testament and New Testament, the book of Revelation is just full of that. And and this is no exception. If you looked at the description that John uses here of the risen Savior, it's a prophecy that, that Daniel had received, the vision that Daniel had received. And you can read about it in the book of Daniel chapters 7 and chapters 10. It looks very similar to this vision that God gives to John hundreds of years after he had given the vision to Daniel. Also in Zechariah chapter 4, you'll notice a lot of connections as well. So you could go ahead and look there. One interesting thing to note is that as Daniel saw this vision, he kind of saw two separate beings. He saw the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days as two different beings. He didn't understand as he had the vision that they were one and the same person. And so John in the book of Revelation is now applying both of those, Ancient of Days and Son of Man, to Jesus. We've been studying through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and you might remember, those of you that have been here on Sunday mornings, that Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself is 
Son of Man. And so that's how John sees him here. Let's look at the description. It says, saw one like a son of man. First he talks about his clothing. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Those are both symbols. He's probably not wearing that, that tattered robe that you've seen him wear in, in pictures of Jesus. He is probably wearing a white robe and it is a long robe. And there's a golden sash around his chest because he's dressed not as a peasant, but as a king. Because he is. The risen Savior is a king. And so our image of the risen Jesus is one of king. He is wearing a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Look at verse 14. starts to describe what he looks like now. It says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Okay? That whiteness, the white hair, was a symbol of wisdom. Some of you might be very wise here this morning. Because uh, white hair was a symbol of wisdom. And so, referring here to the risen Savior being the wise living God. And then, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. Those piercing eyes that when Jesus was on this earth, His gaze could only be fixed on one thing at a time. But now from His throne in heaven, He has eyes like flames of fire that can see all things. Nothing escapes the vision of our risen Savior. He sees all things. And then, we get a little bit more. It says His feet were like burnished bronze. Burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Okay, That is, feet that are pure and feet that are strong. That, that Jesus, the risen Jesus, has the kind of power in those burnished bronze feet to crush evil. And He is pure. Okay, And now, next description is that His voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you been around rapids? You, you know, like, like, like real rapids. Like not, probably not like the kind you can find in the Iowa River. Like you have to go somewhere else. Where, where you hear the sound of roaring waters. If there were actually falls in Iowa, we could actually think about that. Um, but, but this sound, Jesus' voice is not this faint little whisper. But as John gets this vision of the risen Savior, he hears the sound of the thundering of his voice like roaring waters. So that's what he hears. Earlier it sounded like a loud trumpet. I love this picture of Jesus. It says in verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars. He just holds stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now again, this is symbolic. There's not actually a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's a symbol of judgment. That He has the power with His Word to make judgment on people. And then it says, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. you ever been driving in your car at either sunrise or sunset? And there's that spot that the sun is that your visor doesn't help you enough. Like you can put it down, but that's not going to do it. 
and you can't, like, you can't even adjust yourself well enough, so you have to also put your hand up and try and block the sun because you just can't take it in and still see the road that you're traveling on. As we look at the face of our risen Savior, it is shining like the sun that you have to squint and you can't even see Jesus in all of His glory. That's our Savior. This is the vision that John receives. And so the question is, how do you respond to something like that? How do you respond to something like that? When you see a picture of Jesus, the Savior, not as He was, not as John remembered Him when He was His friend, who wore battered clothes and had dirty feet, but now He is a risen, kingly, powerful judge and Savior. How do you respond to that vision? Look at how John responds in verse 17. When I saw him, and remember, John at this point is probably almost 100 years old. A lot of you that are almost 100 years old probably not thinking of doing this. But look what John does. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I don't know what position John was in when this vision came, but he ends at the end of the vision on his face before the risen Savior. Seeing Him in all of His kingly splendor and majesty and glory, it's the only possible response for John and for us. As we see Jesus risen and living on the throne this Easter morning, the only response we ought to have is one of just worship and awe and obedience. That's what this day should cause for us. I would love that we would have that vision together as a church. I think that would change us. I think that would change our community. But look how Christ responds. The risen Christ actually responds to John's response. It says, but he laid his right hand on me. The risen, powerful Savior so powerful that it's like he has a a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, his eyes flaming like fire, his hair white as wool, dressed in kingly garb. And as John falls down in worship, the risen Savior lays his right hand on John. And he says to John, who was probably trembling in fear, he says, fear not. Fear not. Now you would expect that he would say, Fear not, John. Remember what I used to be. Remember remember me when I held little lambs and walked with you and had little children come and sit in my lap. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, fear not, John. Remember what I used to be. He draws attention to who he is right now. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last. Just a few verses before in verse 8, God the Father spoke and said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last. Jesus is declaring to John, I am God. Fear not, for I am God. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And John says, oh, I remember that. I was there, and I was weeping, and I took care of your mom for you. I remember when you died. I remember how cruel they were to you when you didn't deserve it. You were the one who lived without sin, and they saw you as the guilty one. 
and you were nailed to a cross. I was there. I watched that. I saw that. I remember that you died. Jesus says to him, I died, and behold, look. Jesus says, look at me. I'm alive forevermore. You saw me. You went through the grief of me dying once before, but you will never see that again. Death has no power over our risen Savior. And that's good news for John, and that's good news for us. So I've got to stop and ask you, where are you looking for hope this morning? If you look at the world around you, or even look at your own little world, you're not going to find much hope. So where are your eyes fixed? John's friends had all died. He didn't even have a church family left. You can turn to his church family for hope. Maybe you've turned to your church family for hope and they've let you down. We're sorry. But we could tell you that what you really need, church, what we really need is the same thing that John really needed. That is to see Jesus who is alive. We live in a world full of false hope and empty promises and dead and dying idols. And in this world, we need to see Jesus who is alive forevermore. That's the difference between Jesus and all the false gods that we have in our world. All the false gods that we have in our world. All the idols that we're prone to worship. And I'm not talking little statue kind of things that you put above your fireplace and have some candles around. I'm talking idols like your money, your stuff, your job, your family. All these things that we're so prone to worship are so temporary. But Jesus is alive. The one thing all other false gods have in common is that they have died or will die. I'm going to give you some words. Um, I'm not going to call it rap because I can't do that. But, but let, me, let me share with you a couple of words from somebody uh, who's good with words. He says this, newsflash, Elvis is dead. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. However, Jesus is alive. So, give praise to King Jesus, the blessed Son, the victorious, glorious, resurrected One. To Him belongs the power, the glory, the honor, ascended where He sits at the right hand of the Father. At the cross He made atonement, His people He saved. After three days He was raised in defeat of the grave. By faith the elect behold Him, His scepter is golden. He surely is God and death can't even hold Him. The spotlight now is on today's icons, but in a thousand years nobody will care. Their light's gone. But at that time, Christ will still shine bright. He's not in the limelight. He is the limelight. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. And then he goes on and he shares a lot more. There's a lot of people that a lot of people have put their hope in for a long time that are all dead. But we know and we serve and we worship the Jesus who truly is alive and will be alive forevermore. And Jesus is not done here. Here's what he says. Verse 18, I'm the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then listen to what he says. I have the keys of death and Hades. What does that mean? I have the keys of death and Hades. If you listen to Peter preaching, 
in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, this is what he said. He's talking to people who had actually crucified Jesus, and he says to them, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible. None of us on our own can escape death. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how famous you are, how powerful you are. All, rich, poor, oppressor, oppressed, all will one day experience death. It's the result of sin. But Peter proclaims in in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he preaches that Jesus is alive and death has no power over him. That's what we learn in the resurrection of Jesus. That there is no power over Jesus. Even death, which seems so powerful and inevitable and uncontrollable by us, Jesus has full power over even death. So he holds the keys to death and to Hades. What does that mean for us? A couple things. One, death is real. It is coming. Hell is also real. And Satan doesn't reign there. Satan's not in control of hell. Jesus is in control even there. He holds the keys. That means he's in charge. You ever, when you were a teenager maybe, you got punished by your parents and they took away the car keys from you? That's all they got to do. They don't got to go park your car somewhere else, right? Because you can still, if they took away your car keys, you can still go touch the car, smell the car, look at the car. Like you can still kind of look at the car, but the power of the car is in the keys. If they got the keys, you the car ain't moving, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, death, it feels like you have no power over You can maybe even see it coming, and it feels like you have no power over it, but behold, I have the keys. I have power over death and Hades. And so two things that means. One, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, listen, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have no need to fear. The one who holds the keys for you, through his death and through his resurrection, he has purchased your pardon. He has paid your ransom. He has borne your sin. He has given you his righteousness. And in him, you have the victory over death and the sure hope of eternal life. That's what that means if you are in Christ. But I also don't doubt that there are those sitting here this morning that you came out of obligation or whatever other reason, or maybe you've been coming and you've been sitting in our church for many years. What this means for you, you know, you might be here and you're looking at your life and you're like, you know what, I'm trying to do all the right things and I think I'm actually doing pretty good. I'm in church on Easter, right? There's a lot of people that ain't in church today, but I'm here. I'm trying to be good. I don't do a lot of bad stuff that a lot of other bad people do. I'm trying not to judge others. I try to say nice things about people. And your hope is that somehow, in the end, the scales will be tipped in your favor, and Jesus will say, I'll let you in. You've you've done done the best you could. Well, there's bad news for you if that's your hope. And the bad news is, your best deeds of righteousness and goodness are not good enough for our perfect and holy God. 
Only what Christ has done is good enough. And so you cannot get in by doing good things and showing up at church on Easter and trying to be nice. It's not possible. The one who holds the keys to death and Hades is the judge who has the power to lock you up forever in the eternal torment of hell. That is the truth about who Jesus is. And your only hope is not to try harder to be better, but your only hope is to trust in Jesus, to turn away from your sin and your dependence on yourself and to say, you know what, I've got nothing. I've got nothing, and all I have is Jesus. And so I now put my trust in you, Jesus. I want you to be my rescuer, my savior, and my king. Take over my life. That's your only hope. And if that's where you're at today, if God is stirring in your heart and you want to put your trust in Jesus, I would love to talk to you after the service. Don't be scared of me because I'm wearing a suit. I don't do that very often. Come and talk to me. We worship the Jesus who is alive. The last couple of verses we already referred to is just further instructions to John on how to use this. But they tell us that this vision of the resurrected Jesus is what the church needs. I think it's what we needed this morning. I hope it's what you needed this morning. I trust it is. I'm grateful that God commanded John to record this vision so that we could today see Jesus, a a picture of Jesus in all of his risen glory. And so we're going to close this morning. Uh, I'm going to share a couple of of words um, from someone else. And uh, here's what he says. It's It's another pastor. He says this, Your response to Jesus as he is revealed in this passage determines whether you will rule with him or be slain by the sword that comes from his mouth. He is risen. He is indestructible. He is unconquerable. And He is Lord. That's good news.